The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, Episode 55. Captain DeBridge, Spock here. Make yourself. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Deep Space Nine episode, Past Prologue. And joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? And folks, if you want to make sure you always get the latest episodes of The Secrets of Star Trek, please subscribe. Uh, you can do so in iTunes or the Apple Podcast app, in Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, uh, your favorite podcast app like Overcast or Stitcher, or on YouTube where you should hit the bell to get notifications. So we're talking about uh, the Deep Space Nine, the second episode of the, st- of the series, Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. We've jumped back mm-hmm. to the beginning. And uh, this is something I didn't realize, was that Garrick was in from the beginning, was in Deep Space Nine, from the ve- from the very the second episode of the series, that was I, was I didn't realize that I was surprised he wasn't in the pilot, but this is his introduction. So we get the beginning of this right from the beginning of the episode, the beginning of this uh, interesting relationship between Garrick and Bashir, this friendship, this odd friendship of the spy who came in from the cold, sort of thing. Uh, and well, in Bashir- this case, the spy who didn't come in from the cold. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Right, right. This, but it, and. And Bashir, who thinks he's sort of an innocent and, uh, at this point, uh, who thinks that Garrick is a spy and is all enamored of this idea of getting involved in spy craft. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Garrick is more than happy to play into it. You know, Bashir's got his his eyes are still, you know, lit up with the idea of being this frontier medicine doctor. And now he can get involved in spies and James Bond and all that. And Garrick just plays right into it. Right. Kind of a meta comment about this episode. I was surprised in rewatching it. I hadn't seen it in years, and it was a lot better than I expected. I remember, you know, like a lot of the Star Trek series, Deep Space Nine took a while to find, really find its legs and get going. And I remembered there were some early episodes that I wasn't wild about. And so I, I, I recognized the first season of DS9 was still way better than the first season of Next Gen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. But there were still some episodes that I kind of thought were clunkers in there. And watching this is like, no, this is a really good episode. This could, yeah. th- this is not suffering from first seasonitis. The only, right. only thing I see with it is it's, it's hard to watch because you can tell that some of the actors are still figuring out their characters mm-hmm. in this. You know, uh, Kira. And, and Bashir, <laughs> Kira, Bashir. Definitely where they're just, you know, O'Brien, he's, he's comfortable because he's been playing this character for a few years already. But, you know, there's some of them where, and it's kind of painful to watch because these are characters that we've gotten to know and to truly love. And it's just like, oh, but that's, I forgot how bad they were when they first started. Yeah. I would say the actors who had their character from the beginning were, uh, well, the characters, Quark, Cisco, mm-hmm. um, 
Odo. That's it. Oh, uh, Odo. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, Odo did change, but that's just more of a development. Character up, development. development of the character. Yeah. Kira was much angrier and confrontational and uncomfortable. I, I think. think, I think that's part of her arc though, because yeah. she's, she's just recently been a terrorist who has now come to power as part of the provisional government. And she's not comfortable with Cisco being here. She really doesn't want the Federation here. Yeah. But on the other hand, he's the emissary and she's a woman of faith. And that dynamic is still playing itself out in her head. Right. 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 Exactly. But she's, She's still very angry. <laughs> oh, yeah, and that's and that, that's part of it. Part of it is I think they did tone her character down a little bit. Part of it is that's part of her character arc, though, of going from being this terrorist to the you know delegate from the Bajoran government to you know on from there. Mm-hmm. Now Bashir, they change. I mean, by yes. the end, we know that Bashir is really a mutant. Um, yes, he's yeah. really a mutant, and and this is supposed to be somewhat. Somewhat of an act, although he's still young and a little bit unknowing as well. Whereas I think with Terry Farrell and Dax, I think she just doesn't know what to do with this character yet. I think Mm -hmm. she's sort of feeling out what does it mean to be a symbiotic creature with a 300-year-old slug slug who has the personality of an old guy in her still. I think I remember in an oral history I was listening to hearing Terry Farrell talk about how she didn't. And it took her a while to figure out who Dax was and how she was supposed to relate to Cisco, because mm-hmm. they're supposed to be like old friends and Dax is his former mentor, but right. she's also this young woman now. Who's who's his underling uh, in, who's his in underling. the command structure. Yeah, yep. I think, in fact, I remember that it was Cisco, the the actress. Um, Avery, Avery Brooks. Avery Brooks is, was an ad lib of old man the first time they did it, I think, hmm. if I recall. I, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but uh, I had this impression. So what's what's major here, though, is the the dynamic that gets established between Garrick and Bashir. Right. right. And um, and that's something that was originally just a one episode thing. When Andrew Robinson got hired to play Garrick, he didn't expect an ongoing role. He thought, I'm here to do this one show for one week and that's it. And it then led to him becoming like with several other characters on the show who were introduced as minor players in one shots became major people in the overall arc of the show. Exactly. Um, which is one of the distinctives of Deep of Deep Space Nine is how it would do that with auxiliary characters. We're not just locked into our initial starting cast and they're the only people who we're ever going to follow. Exactly. Um, yeah. So when we first meet, uh, when Garrick and Bashir first meet, uh, Bashir is in the Replimat, which is like uh, it's it's a play on automats. Automats mm-hmm. are self self service restaurants where you like go and you put coins in a in a machine in a vending machine and out comes your lunch or whatever. Here they're doing it with replicator technology, and yep. Brashear is eating, and Garrick just comes up and introduces himself and sits down and is super friendly and super creepy. Yep. Yes. <laughs> Bashir is really uncomfortable around him. But Garak is just very suave and friendly and creepy, and and he gives a non-denial denial about being a spy. You know, uh, Gar- Bashir starts hinting around, and it's like, Doctor, I hope you're not insinuating I'm some kind of spy. Oh, Bashir doesn't even hint around. Bashir doesn't even hint around. He bluntly basically says, you're a spy, aren't you? Yeah, some people say you're a spy. <laughs> But I, I like I like Garrick because he you know when Bashir first says oh Mister Garrick and he says 
oh, I'm just plain, simple Garrick, which, of course, as we come to find out as they develop the character in later seasons, he's neither plain nor simple Garrick. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad to have made such an interesting new friend today, he says to Bashir. It's just so like it. He's very oily and unctuous. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's Andrew Robinson did this so well. I mean, because the words just on the page are very straightforward and friendly, but it's the way he plays it. And I think that's why Garrick becomes one of the most popular characters, yeah. of, oh, yes. especially secondary characters on the show. Andrew Robinson also was a very is an actor of quite some note. Um, yeah, and I don't I, I don't know his everything he's done, but he was very famous before this for having been in the film Dirty Harry. Um, mm. He played the Scorpio Killer, the antagonist in Dirty Harry mm. in the original Clint Eastwood Dirty Harry film. And the Scorpio Killer is is a fictionalized version of the Zodiac Killer that was active in San Francisco in uh, like the late 60s, early 70s. And so that's Andrew Robinson comes from this background of having played these really sinister, clever guys. And so Bashir runs to ops where he kind of makes a fool of himself. <laughs> he does. Yeah. He's like a, like a puppy dog. <laughs> yeah. He like sort of runs around like, oh, spy, I've been- spy. I've been approached by a spy. What do I do? And everyone's kind of like, calm down, calm down. Exactly. And then, uh, and then they get this, uh, the, this alert. There's a Cardassian vessel chasing a, a Bajoran, uh, scout vessel. It's mm-hmm. a smaller ship. And Kira right off the bat assumes that the Cardassians are the, are the aggressors of the bad guys in this situation, which is understandable given her history, but it sort of sets the, the viewer up. For assuming the same as well, mm-hmm. uh, which we we are going to have our assumptions challenged. It sets me up for Kira is wrong, but <laughs> yep, right. <laughs> so uh, he's beamed out of his ship uh, just as it explodes, and then it's his name is Tanalos, right? And, and O'Brien beams him out, and he knows Kira, right? <laughs> and he requests political asylum as as they beam him out. Now, uh, Cisco talks to the Cardassian gull who's chasing him, and he claims that, uh, no, Tanalos is a Konma terrorist. Konma is a terrorist group. Um, they're an extreme version of yeah. the terrorists. They're isolationists, uh, that are, they're extreme isolationists. They do, are very opposed to the Federation being here, and they're so opposed, they're even killing off members of the provisional government. For who were perceived as collaborators with the Federation. They killed an assistant first minister last month. Right. And there is a, there's this interesting argument that happens between Kira and Cisco over Tana, right in the promenade, right on the open, this mm-hmm. like open insubordination. Yeah. Uh, where mm-hmm. Cisco tells her, I, I suggest you get your priorities straight, Major, because I don't have any room for divided loyalties. Right. And uh, that's, I mean, it was a pretty strong. Yeah. And then she gives it right back to him, by the way. Yeah. It, interesting. Before that, when he's talking to the Cardassian captain, the captain is like, you must turn this terrorist over to us immediately. Even the Bajorans don't. The Bajoran provisional government doesn't countenance these guys. They're so extreme. And Cisco acknowledges, you know, the captain's demanding, are you going to give them to me or not? And Cisco says, you know, I haven't decided yet. And he comes off as very reasonable mm-hmm. and thoughtful and methodical. He's not jumping to conclusions one way or another here. And he also it comes off as a clever diplomat because when the Cardassian captain starts to try to muscle the situation and intimidate him, he subtly, politely throws it back at him mm-hmm. and like points out things that would undermine the captain's position. 
and potentially embarrass him. And so he's he's both coming across as a really reasonable guy and as a really clever diplomat in dealing with this situation. He invites him to dock the vessel and says, uh, and but and then after that, I'll be glad to hear your explanation for violating Bajoran space and threatening a Federation facility. And the the the, the Cardassian, oh, we've made no threat to your facilities. Oh, I stand corrected, Cisco says, which yeah. is yep. very clearly saying, you, you know, you're not threatening a Federation facility potentially starting a war, right? Are you? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't do that, would you? <laughs> so then, uh, so yeah, so then we have. Cisco being very thoughtful here. This has really set up his character as uh, in this mm-hmm. episode, which is really good. And then uh, this confrontation with Kira, which again he is the one who is being level-headed, not jumping to conclusions, not uh, letting emotion get the best of him. What I find a little difficult here is Kira's position because I can buy okay, she's a, she's a recent ex-terrorist and stuff, but she is w- way more sympathetic to Tana Loss than I think she ought to be. I mean, she's right. she she's not on the same side as Tana Loss, but she says that she thinks Bajor needs men like him, which initially is a very bold statement. I mean, how can you mm-hmm. say she needs men like this guy when he's killing right. his group is killing members of the provisional government for collaborating with the Federation. And she then kind of walks it back a little bit and says that at some point they have to reach out and reintegrate the right. uh, the people of Tana Loss's organization and so forth. So it, it, I still, though, it comes across as kind of strong. To me, this is a weak point in the writing of the episode. Right. I think Kira is too sympathetic to uh to Tana Loss, they could have softened that a little bit and still kept the structure of the story. She doesn't have to be this pro Tana Loss. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, she she makes the point that in order for Bajor to move forward, these splinter groups have to be brought back in to the umbrella yeah. and uh it's an interest, interesting approach. Meanwhile, Tana Loss himself is being set up as an interesting character because he says that he has used violence Include, he admits to Cisco, I have used violence, including since the Cardassian withdrawal from Bajor. So he admits mm-hmm. he's used violence recently, but he also says he's had enough of killing. Right. And that's actually true. He doesn't want to kill people. Um, he's later kind of pushed into a situation or gets into a situation where he might be willing to do it, but it's not what his goal is. Right. And then uh, in the very next scene, so yeah, basically Cisco had kicked Kira out and it was talking to Tana by himself because she kept interfering. And Kira is in her quarters talking to uh, Starfleet Admiral, basically had gone over Cisco's head, violated the chain of command. And the Admiral also is very diplomatic. Oh, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, I'm sure. Thank you for bringing it to my attention. I will, I will look into this for you. Uh, <laughs> at which point... She then later on we'll see that she then calls Cisco and says, "I was in a staff meeting, got pulled out of this meeting by your second in command, who is complaining about you. Get it together at Deep Space Nine. I don't know what you got going on down there, uh, Cisco, but take care of it." And and Cisco, to his credit, doesn't immediately go to Kira. Yeah, uh, she, he uh, it, the admiral is like, "You got to get this woman on a leash." Um, right. You know, she's out of control. She's jumping over the chain of command. And you're right. Cisco does not immediately bring it up to her. Although later, Cisco does 
allude to the fact that he's spoken to the admiral and like, if you cross me again, you're in big trouble. Well, and he does that at a really interesting point, which is she, Kira is, has given Cisco a backhanded compliment. Yeah. Thanking him for support of, of her point, of her point. So mm -hmm. she's conceded. And in that concession, he then lets her know, yeah. by the way, yeah. go over my head again and I'll have your head on a platter. And he <laughs> yeah. smiles and has really cold eyes. Yes, which Avery Brooks does so well. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> but in the meantime, Cisco grants asylum to, to Tunnelos, which again, provisionally, did, temporarily, did, yes, did not expect. But Cisco thinks turning him over would undermine everything he's trying to accomplish, which is to lower the rhetoric, lower the temperature in the room, get people sitting at a table and, and start to move forward. And turning him over might undermine all that. There's there's an interesting moment before he makes this decision where O'Brien talks to him and says, you've never fought Cardassians, have you? And O'Brien, of course, we know has. He was, yes. as we'll later learn, the hero of Setlick 3. Um, right. And so um, so he tells Cisco, well, I wouldn't want to see anyone turned over to them, uh, indicating right. how bad his, yep. his experience Cardassians treat prisoners. And at that point, Cisco grants the temporary asylum. And he tells the Cardassian why. He says it's so as not to undermine the Federation's relationship with Bajor, to have the Federation representative to Bajor, him, turn over a Cardassian, a Bajoran freedom fighter to, the, to, the, to them mm -hmm. would undermine the Federation's relationship with Bajor. But he's not opposed to the idea of them pursuing Tanalos through other legal means. So yeah, right. he says, you know, he's he's not going to be here on Deep Space Nine permanently. Presumably, he's going to be repatriated to Bajor at some point. And if, as you say, the Bajoran provisional government doesn't cotton to these people, then you could get him extradited at that time. Mm -hmm. Right. He has a perfectly acceptable legal alternative all set up for everyone. You mean blasting him out of space is, is not a perfectly legal method? <laughs> Apparently not. Uh, while well, Cardassia is perfectly legal, not uh, in, not in legal Bajoran system. space, right? Exactly. So then, Kira Tana gets some quarters while he's while he has his asylum, and Kira it brings him there, and they have this confrontational. Tana is is kind of keeps needling and pushing Kira that she's she's given in, she's gone mm -hmm. soft, she's yeah. wearing that uniform and working with the Federation. We shouldn't. Be, you know, lapdogs to the Federation, they're no better than the Cardassians, is, is, you know, is kind of saying, we need to stand alone. And, and he makes a, a mar remark that the wormhole creates the problem. Right. For Bajor. Because that's why the Federation and the Cardassians will not leave us alone. It's because mm -hmm. of the wormhole. Right. Which and is so, foreshadowing for what his actual plan is. Right. And, and that's then, that's it shows the extremism, they will eventually show the extremism of these. Konma extremists is the wormhole is good for Bajor. It makes them a crossroads of trade and commerce and important, you know, to everyone. But they don't care. They just want to be left alone, even if it starves Bajor. They would rather just be left alone. That shows that extreme attitude that, that people have. Interestingly, in this scene, Kira is pragmatic about we have to have the Federation here now to protect us from the Cardassians. But at this point in her character development, she actually does want to end the relationship with the Federation once Bajor has had a chance to recover from exactly. the Cardassian occupation 
and is strong enough to defend itself. So she does not want Bajor to become part of the Federation. Right. She's yeah, that that idea that Bajor becoming part of the Federation becomes a a popular idea. That's a development over time and one of yeah. those characteristics of Deep Space Nine that that we all love. Well, that's that's what makes that's what makes this early part of D- DS9 so interesting is it's the first season basically is in a non-federation space. Right. You know, all right. other seasons might have times where the ship goes out of federation space, but most of the seasons are within federation space. That's true. So uh, then we have another element of chaos introduced into the story. The uh, the Duras sisters show uh, up. Who Lursa we know f- and Bator, the bad pennies. You just can't get rid of them. <laughs> so we know them from uh, the next generation where they try to uh, overthrow uh, the Klingon uh, High Council and take control of the Empire. Uh, they're on the promenade refusing to give up their weapons. I, I know they're not meant to be sympathetic characters. But they're not my favorite unsympathetic characters. I just, <laughs> I, I'm not fans of these guys. No. Every story they're in, I find myself not liking as much as if they hadn't been in it. Right. Yeah, it's, it, there's, there's just something about these characters that are just unpleasant. I mean, Gul Dukat is, is a bad guy. Yeah, he's great. He's deliciously <laughs> unpleasant. <laughs> but right, these, exactly. these characters are just, oh, really? These guys are annoying. Again? They're just annoying. They're just, I don't know if this, whether it's a cliche or a stereotype of some sort or just uh, the teeth, well, the way that they, makes them talk. It may be partly the teeth, but it's also they just don't have charisma. So no. it, like with 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 Garrick or uh, Anabran Tain, Garrick's father, who we'll later meet. Or other Klingons like Gowron. Well, even Gowron, I'm not wild about. He's got those <laughs> weird eyes. But um, but all of these, like the Cardassian villains and sinister people here on Deep Space Nine, they all they're sinister, but they've got charisma. You know, I'd say Worf has charisma as a Klingon, mm-hmm. but most of the other Klingon actors they bring on really don't. Martok does. I like Martok. Martok yeah. does. Martok is yeah. really good. Martok has charisma. Um, but a lot and of Kolos and um, mm-hmm. yeah, the old yeah. like for the, the Kang the, the, Kang and Kolos. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, but you're right. I mean, a lot of the other uh, Klingon characters, it's it's a hard character to get into, I think, for a lot of actors to kind of really understand how to play it well yeah, without yeah. just being bombastic. Yeah, that's the, temp- the temptation is to just do it over the top, over the top, violent, sexual, sinister, whatever, and no subtlety to the performance. Right. right. So uh, th- there's a fun moment where... Uh, Odo talks to Cisco about uh, the Duras sisters, and he says um, uh, he wants to throw them in jail. And uh, it, it, Cisco says they haven't broken any laws; you can't just throw them in jail. And he says, uh, and Odo says, Kardashian rule may have been oppressive, but at least it was simple. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. He sort of yearns <laughs> for the days of simple oppressive rule, which is actually an, a f- known psychological phenomenon that happen phenomenon that happens when. Dictatorships, you know, go away, and suddenly people are having to confront a much more complex situation that's not as predictable as what they were used to. Well, think about this: this is airing in January of 1993. This is around where the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think people are already experiencing that in real life. Uh, so it's interesting. So we have a uh, we move to Quarks, which is smokier than it will be eventually. I don't know if you guys noticed that, but uh, hmm. it there's a there is a cloud of something somebody smoking oh, shifting around. I didn't notice yeah. that. What I did notice is two customers in the background of different alien races 
are having a fist pushing contest. Yes. It's like they're <laughs> the space version of thumb wrestling or arm wrestling is they put their two fists together and they're trying to push on each other with their fists. I wonder if that was the extras that came up with that or the they were directed to do it. But the it's, I enjoyed it. It's like, <laughs> yay, okay. Yeah. Uh, so they, they, we find the Dora sisters, of course, are meeting with Tana Lost because they're not there for no reason. They're there for a reason. And Odo, from, from, uh, from an unknown species who's only ever experienced the planet Bajor, decides to observe this conversation as a Terran mouse. <laughs> yes. Or, or rat. But yeah. Yeah. No, no. That's a uh, Tarkalian rat, of course. Oh, because, is it? <laughs> because they always are like, like a, a, you know, a Denebian bunny or something. You know, it's mm-hmm. always going to be like something alien exotic. Species. Yeah. Yeah. Alien planet uh, based on an Earth species. Uh, so I noticed that Cisco doesn't tell Kira what Odo has found out about Tana Loss yep. meeting with the Dara sisters. He doesn't trust her. Which is yep. interesting. Another interesting aspect to this early part of the series. And this is when she uh, he she finds out that he knows she's gone over his head because she's yes. been trying to arrange amnesty for Tana Loss with the Bajoran High Council. And by doing so, she's trying to encourage other members of the Khan Ma to renounce violence and repatriate. And mm-hmm. uh, Cisco has been helping with that effort. So right. she's really appreciative of the fact he's helping trying to reintegrate the Khan Ma into Feder- into Bajoran society and thus helping her line up this amnesty deal. And that's when he says, go over my head again and I'll have yours on a platter. Right. So then the Dura sisters, because they're slimy and uh, they decide to double cross Tanalos and they come to Garrick looking to sell him out to the Cardassians. Uh, so there's a, there's a, <laughs> Seen in Garrick's shop where he's uh, where, where they try to negotiate and he denies at first. And then he uh, then he sort of says, well, let's haggle over the transaction here. Uh, and then he goes to to uh, Garrick. Ga- oh, Garrick goes to to Bashir. Bashir. Yeah. Yeah. And says um, Bashir is kind of playing the game. And Garrick says, nope, no time for that now. Be at my shop to buy a new suit at exactly 2055. And Bashir being kind of dense doesn't get it at first yeah and yeah and then <clears throat> he realizes meanwhile kira is telling tana loss that she won him amnesty you know and the Konma amnesty and he insults her as yeah. being a yep. politician yeah oh and by the way there's two more of these Konma guys who are on their way to the station ostensibly to receive amnesty and renounce violence but they actually may be bringing the gold pressed latinum that right. is going to be used to pay off the duress sisters Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, and as um, as Tanalos insults Kira, he says, uh, once you're in your comfortable bed with the Federation, you won't be able to get out. We won't be able to get out. And the irony is he's actually right. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the, but that's the best thing for Bajor. But he's right. That's what happens is they 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 stay in a relationship and Bajor becomes yeah. part of the Federation. And And it becomes obvious during the course of this conversation, he came here deliberately knowing she was here, yep. and he's here to recruit her right and And so even though he is still opposed to violence, he's, he admits that, um, he is otherwise hardcore and is, yep. and is here on a covert mission for the Konma, and he wants to enlist her in the plan, but because of compartmentalization, he can't tell her what the plan is. Right. Mm-hmm. But he says, uh, I need a small warp capable ship 
to non-violently accomplish everything we want. So, and so that's the dun dun dun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Kira has a moral dilemma, and yeah. she goes goes to Odo to confide that there's stuff she's done she's not proud of, but when she did it, she was sure of the rightness of what she's done. Right. But now, so we're this is the moral crux of this episode is yes. the whole where are Kira's loyalties? Is she mm-hmm. going to be loyal to Cisco and the Federation and do her duty to them? Or is she going to be loyal to Tana Loss's vision of what loyalty to Bajor should look like and right. not tell right. the Federation what's going on? And so we've now got this is the key crux of the dilemma. And so she she consults with Odo um, because whichever way she decides this, it's ultimately going to reveal her loyalties one way or the other. She kind of earlier when when Cisco had pushed her and said, there's no room for divided loyalties. I need you need to evaluate your priorities. She said, there's no question about my loyalties there to Bajor. Well, OK, yeah. But what does that mean? Mm-hmm. There are two exactly. visions of that. There's the be loyal to Bajor by being loyal to the Federation. And there's be loyal to Bajor by not being loyal to the Federation. And now she has to make that choice. And it's interesting she goes to Odo in this moment Mm -hmm. because Odo himself has sort of made this decision in the past. At one point, he was, you know, the head of law enforcement under the Cardassians enforcing Mm -hmm. the law. Now he's head of law enforcement under the Federation slash Bajoran government enforcing the law. You know, he's he's probably done things he's not proud of working into the Cardassians and he's but he's doing the right thing he as best he knows how. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's why she goes to him to make this moral choice. The friendship that we see later hasn't developed to this point yet. At best it's a you know a mutual respect. Yeah. Or at least a one way respect that she respects him. But there's not the friendship that we see develop in later seasons. It's also interesting that she consults him and re- really practically, she'd probably go to a Bajoran Vedic or something to talk this through. But right. But we don't know any Bajoran Vedics on the station at this point. So she goes to Odo and she's having this crisis of faith about what she's doing with her life. She she even says to Odo, I don't know who the enemy is anymore. And um, he encourages her to confront the situation and not try to hide from it. He he invokes the Joranian ostrich, which will hide its head underground even to the point it drowns. And it's like right. really good that he included the adjective Joranian because earth ostriches actually do not hide their heads in the ground, despite the legend. Right. Um, right. <laughs> and, um, but then Odo, and this is really amazing when you think about it, she's come to him to sort out what she should do. And he makes the decision for her. Right. He forces her hand and calls Cisco and tells him there's someone down here who wants to talk to you, meaning Kira. So he just shoves her into Cisco's face, although we don't see that scene on screen. We only see the aftermath after she's talked to Cisco about what's really going on. I think earlier in the conversation, he tells her, like she says, I have to betray someone one side or the other. And Odo tells her the only important thing is not to betray yourself or your principles, uh, so to speak. Mm. Uh, and and so I think he, for Odo, the world is black and white. There's right and wrong. And he he says, well, obviously you're going to do the right thing. So I'm going to make that decision now for you. Just make you stop uh, dithering over it. It's it's very interesting. So it turns out the the exchange that will take place is going to take place off the station. And the exchange is. Um, 
that Tana is going to take this bomb device from he the has, Dura sisters. Yeah, he's got he 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 needs a bilitrium cylinder and an antimatter reactor, mm-hmm. and those two things together. So he gets the bilitrium cylinder from the Dura sisters, and the antimatter reactor, I guess, is part of the warp capable shuttle. And with those two things, he then has the parts he needs to create a bomb sufficient to blow up the entrance to the wormhole. Right. And thus depriving Bajor of its strategic significance to both the Federation and the Cardassians. Right. And so the the exchange will take place uh, around one of Bajor's uh, moons or another planet in the system. Kira will go with Tana Loss in a runabout. Siska and O'Brien will follow in another one. And then the Cardassians are supposed to show up uh, at some point and take Tana Loss from there. Yeah. Things don't go as expected, and right. there is a an interesting moment where, because he's got the bilitrium cylinder and he's traveling at warp, Cisco and O'Brien are afraid of shooting his shuttle because it will scatter radiation all over the system, and uh, he's and Tana Loss is not willing to come out of warp, so it's like, you guys want to shoot me? Go ahead and shoot me, and it's like, wow, this guy is passive aggressive on a Megadeth scale. Yeah, (laughs) he's like he's fulfilling the letter of his i don't want to kill anybody but he's willing to let millions of people die because if they choose to shoot him that is what will happen Mm -hmm. yeah it makes me wonder like isn't if he then explodes it in the mouth of the wormhole doesn't that do the same thing i think the sense there is the radiation will all go into the wormhole and just prevent it from opening again right oh okay and they don't really bring up the, well, what's going to happen? They don't bring up the profits at all, which is surprising. Right. I mean, I, after we've just made contact with our gods, they ought to be talking about that a little bit in this episode. So that's kind of a writing flaw. But I think what the idea is that it'll just reseal the wormhole. So the, the profits will still be there. And maybe they'll take the initiative occasionally to send us an orb or something. But we're not just going to be able to go through the wormhole at will, like we are now. Right, right. So, basically, the Cardassians uh, get to say to Cisco, I told you so, mm-hmm. which yeah. is interesting, because <laughs> the Cardassians turned out to have been right all yep. along. Yep. Kira takes Tanalos through the wormhole instead of, you know, uh, she, she veers into the wormhole at the last second. and So, he, by, the, by the time he's able to eject the bomb, they're through it and on the other side. Right, mm-hmm. where they can't hurt anybody, and he ends up having to surrender, and uh, and and then we sort of wrap things up. There's not a whole lot else that happens here. There's a uh, Kira says to Tana, uh, when they get back to the station, the old ways don't work anymore. Everything's different now. I had to do this. One day you'll understand. And Tana just throws it back in her face, traitor. And that's that's where we end. Which is an interesting, you know, if if this were Voyager, we would have had a scene in Ops where they were standing around a console. Uh, t- telling us the lesson of the episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, but that's my notes on this episode. Do you guys have anything that uh, we wanted to bring up? There's a moment where, at, at a certain point, I guess when they're away from the planets that could be harmed, um, Cisco is willing to shoot the runabout with Kira on board. Mm-hmm. So yep. he, so that was significant. Um, also, Kira physically fights with Tana Loss um, for control of the shuttle. And that also makes it more differenter than Voyager and its endings, because in there, there wouldn't have been a physical fight. They just would have been people talking dramatically, standing over consoles. 
as the climax. <laughs> right. It's interesting when uh, after they so after the bomb has been jettisoned and the wormhole is safe and the the Cardassians also come through. I think if I recall correctly, they come through. But there's this yeah. a deal that Tana, when he su- surrenders, he's got to decide who am I surrendering to? Is it going to be the Federation or the Cardassians? And Cisco gives him that option, and he picks the Federation, which does yeah. at least indicate he knows where the lesser of two evils is from his perspective. But he does remain, in the end, unreconstructed. Yep. Right. Father Corey, anything? Uh, just a couple of interesting actors in this. Um, Goldenar, the Cardassian Gull, was played by Von Armstrong. Well, he's best known as Admiral Forrest in Enterprise. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's where that, that voice and sounds the, familiar. Under all that makeup. <laughs> yeah, and then the uh, the Starfleet Admiral Rollman was played by Susan Bay, also best known as Susan Bay Nimoy, Leonard Nimoy's wife. Oh. oh interesting, interesting. So, uh, I wonder if she did other stuff. Jeffrey Nordling played Tana Loss, and he's a character actor you've seen in a bunch of stuff, uh, including he's still acting, still still working. He hasn't uh, changed much since then. He's one of those ageless sort of actors, uh, but uh, he's been in 24 and a bunch of stuff. Well, uh, before we wrap up, I got a little bit of feedback here. Uh, I got uh, a comment on our uh, on YouTube from Studio Lambs, uh, L-A-M-S. Uh, so it's on our episode where we talk about Fight or Flight, the Enterprise episode. He said, um, this episode of Enterprise did a lot to turn me off the show early on. But based on Jimmy's comments, I'll go back and rewatch some of the later episodes to see if the show was as meh as I thought it was when it originally aired. It was never really clear to me in terms of the tone of the series how new exploring the stars really was to humanity at this point. If this is really the first ship being sent out to explore, then everything seems to be working and going way too smoothly. The show was too close to Star Trek Voyager and not enough like Apollo 13. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although we we do know that humans were going out that far, uh, based on like uh, what's his name, um, is that from Cochran? No, the the Helmsman's oh, family, Mayweather. Meriwether's family. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the freighter captain, freighter families, and that sort of stuff were going out pretty far. But uh, it's an interesting perspective that maybe things should not have worked as smoothly as they did. Yeah, it would it would be interesting to just without any setup about captain i'm worried about whether our phaser system is working just they go to push the button at some point and it just doesn't turn on yeah (laughs) (laughs) which is like what tech does in real life right right that is a good point uh but uh, so thank you studio lambs for that comment and hopefully uh as you go back and watch some enterprise later enterprise you'll enjoy it uh maybe Mm -hmm. watch it along with us as we as we talk about it that would be a good way to do it so, but as we wrap up, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including this week, Ernie M., Clint V., Allison H., Jeff G., and Jeremiah N. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them supporting us financially by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So let us know what you thought of uh, Deep Space Nine's episode past prologue. Let uh, You can go to sqpn.com slash trek or the SQPN Facebook page and leave us feedback there. Or you can send an email to trek at sqpn.com or like Studio Lambs did, you can leave a comment on YouTube if you listen to us there. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Voyager episode, 
time and again. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thanks, Tom. And Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. My pleasure. Thanks, Dom, and live long and prosper. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Trek on Star Quest. And remember, say what you will about Kardashian rule, but at least it was simple. <laughs> <laughs>